I remember when I went across behind the house that day, I, I heard him crying his eyes out. He always had such a loud voice. We had just beat him again, showering him with humiliation and insults. His, his demeanor was not so much sadness as much as anger. He was angry that, that uh, we did not need him, that we did not love him, that we did not want him. Uh, now, some children grow up in homes where they feel they are unloved, but in my brother Jephthah's case, it was true. Now, uh, let, me, let me introduce myself. I, I am an Israelite from the time of the judges, and I am from the, the family and line of, of Gilead, the land of Gilead. How many of you know where Gilead is? Yeah, this is what I anticipated, one, in this massive crowd. It is, it is quite the, the common understanding and experience in this modern world that few know of Gilead. Well, let me share with you. When Joshua and our fathers conquered Canaan, uh, the land that Jehovah had promised to us, they took all of the, the land and they divided it up into 12 sections. Uh, an easy way for you to understand this is within all of my people, there are only 12 last names. Naphtali, Asher, Gad, Issachar. You, you, if you're a Jewish, you have one of those last names. Well, they gave different portions of the land according to those last names. And many of the tribes took their inheritance west of, of, of the Jordan River. When you think of Israel, this is what you think of today. But there is much more to the nation Israel than just this. There's much more promised by Jehovah than just this. Some of us tribes had our inheritance on the east of, of the Jordan River. Now, all of this area on the east became known as Gilead, especially the north. And I share this with you because this is my home. As important to me as yours is to you. Although I would say probably much more in this regard. This, this area, this land had been handed down from generation to generation to generation. Given originally by Jehovah God for us. For me. It was very special. Which is why. When those dogs, the Ammonites, decided to take it. Oh, we had to do something. But let me not get ahead of the story. Uh, let me think. Where was? Oh yes, Jephthah, my my brother Jephthah. Poor, poor Jephthah. Uh, Jephthah came into the family in a most dishonorable way. My father, a, a very good man, a man of standing, mind you, in our tribe. Uh, he was a, a a wonderful father and husband. He was he was faithful to my mother most of the time. There, there was this one time. Where, where he was involved with a, a shrine prostitute. Now, now, please don't ask me what my father, a Hebrew, a leader in the covenant people of God, is doing with a shrine prostitute, worshiping a pagan deity in immorality. Please don't even ask me that. In my family, we don't even go there. But let me suffice it to say this. This was a very confusing time in our nation. Uh, it's not so much that it was confusing by Jehovah. His words were very clear. He had written in a very clear fashion. It was but for us to, to read and understand and listen. But, but, but that did not happen. And, and, and my, my father's friend, the shrine prostitute, became pregnant. Now, now, this was before my time. But my brother Cush, 
The oldest brother, he was there at the time, and he tells me that, that at that point in history, my father had such a burden and such a, a pain for this child that he invited what came to know, be known as the other woman, although Cush called her other names that we'll not discuss this morning. He invited her into our household to live with my mother and the other children. You can imagine this was a very tense time in our household. And when her son Jephthah was born, my father immediately adopted him as his own and immediately gave the other woman her walking papers. Well, well, Jephthah tried to, to fit in. He wanted so much to be accepted. He, Cush tells me, that, that when he was very young and he would bruise his knee and he would need comfort and he was hurt, he would go to our mother, my mother, seeking compassion. But he found none. My, my mother wasn't really mean with him. That was our job, the brothers. And we were very good at our job. You've heard of, of Joseph and his brothers? Us and Jephthah, we made that look like David and Jonathan. We were, we were, we were. And you know how boys are when they get together. There must be someone that they turn their hostilities on. And as the youngest, it would have been me. I was only so glad for Jephthah to take that from me. Well, 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 well Jephthah would, would remind us, brothers, we have the same father. Brothers, it's not my fault. Brothers, should you not love and accept me like Jehovah does? We hated him. We hated We hated him. Now, now I know it wasn't his fault. I, I know, I know, I know. But you must understand, his very presence in our family, his very presence reminded us of this dark secret that was there. His very presence in our family brought, brought shame to the whole name. Whenever we would go out, people would point to Jephthah and they would whisper, not so quietly sometimes, there's the son of the other woman and call her those names that Cush called her. And, and for an ancient oriental family, shame was the greatest, the greatest loss. Because Jephthah was there, my poor mother was in tears often. And then one day Cush... Push is always thinking. He reminded us brothers of a very practical reason why Jephthah should not be a part of our family. He told us of the day that, that when our father would go see Jehovah, they would divide up the inheritance. But as long as Jephthah was there, adopted by my father, a legal heir, our parts would be smaller. Well, what to do? We couldn't just kill him. Uh, we, we thought of, of this, of course. But we were a, a semi-good, God-honoring uh, family. And we were relatively certain that there was something in the Torah, the law, that would prohibit such a thing. And if we did this, it would bring greater shame on our family. So we had to think of another plan. Well, we thought and we thought and we discussed and we finally realized that we would take the high road. That we would do the honorable, respectable thing. That we would make Jephthah's life so intolerable, so unbearable, that he would leave on his own. And so we ratcheted up the pain. And so it was not surprising the day we awoke and Jephthah was gone. Word is that he ran off to Tob. <laughs> Tob, mind you. Tob. Tob, a very pagan, wild land outside the borders of Israel. 
And the word was that he joined up with, 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 with a gang of, of, of ruffians, uh, who's who in the mafia sort of people, uh, uh, sickos and pagan thugs who like Robin Hood stole, but unlike Robin Hood stood from, stole from the poor as well as the rich. Uh, I'm guessing that Jephthah found his family and his love and acceptance with those people. That is all the well for me. It was our desire to never see him again. <coughs> Until that one day. I, I, I have to tell you something about my family at this point in history. This was a very, very dark, dark time for our nation. Uh, morally, politically, and spiritually. Since the land was divided up. The only thing that really held us tribes together were our common enemies. And we would try to take the the ancient law of Moses. And it was old, but we needed to modernize it for modern life in Canaan. Well, if you knew anything about Jehovah, he's not a bit interested in people modernizing his law. Well, he sent the Ammonites to us, enemies. He treated us probably the way we treated Jephthah. The king of the Ammonites had it in his mind that our land was his, and he wanted it, and he was going to take it. And so his armies began congregating on the border, growing larger and larger every day. And as we looked, we knew that if the king of the Ammonites gave the word, we would be annihilated, us and our families, by noon. So just before we began pulling out the for sale signs and planning on the vacation to the other side of the Jordan with our families, Cush calls us together. says, brothers, I've been thinking about the Ammonite problem. Well, we'd all have been thinking about the Ammonite problem, but no solutions. He said, "Um, but I've also been thinking about our long lost beloved brother, Jephthah. I don't know if you have heard, but Jephthah's gang won another victory the other day. As a matter of fact, they have been meeting victory after victory after victory. And and their their gang has turned into an army with more people joining and joining. It is said that that their presence strikes such fear in the hearts of their enemies that they lay down their swords before the battle is even engaged. And yes, they are pagans, but they are fierce, courageous warriors, seemingly invincible. I wonder if it might be time to invite Our dear, sweet brother, Jeff, the back. If he might be interested in a business proposition. What? Are you crazy? I said, do you have mad camel's disease? Don't you remember the don't you remember the names we called his mother? Don't you remember the bets we would take on how many times we would have to hit him before he would bleed? Don't you remember the the get out of here, you loser? I hope you die. Don't you think that Jephthah remembers these things? Don't you think that he might think that he owes us a thing or two? And Kush said, oh, brothers, brothers. That was so long ago. We were mere children, childish pranks. (laughs) I am sure that Jephthah does not even remember such things. It's much better for him to be off. And look at the success he's having. I am sure that he has no memory of such things. Besides, what options do we have? Do we take our chance with Jephthah or with the Ammonites? Cush did have a point. 
Perhaps he was right. Perhaps I was blowing this out of proportion. I am certain that, yes, Jephthah forgot all about these things. So the next day we started our search for Jephthah. And Jehovah was with us because we weren't down too far before we found him. Or actually, I guess he found us. We were walking through the woods and suddenly... There was a battle cry given, and, and, and people started running towards us, and, and we tried to run, but they were coming from that side as well, and, and we found ourselves surrounded. And as the pagan warriors were running at us with drawn swords, we were certain that this was the end. But then a loud, booming voice called off the attack, faintly familiar. And their leader stepped forward. Now, he recognized us immediately, but it took me just a moment. He was, shut them had grown up, had broad shoulders and iron arms. He, he had a beard. Now, it's becoming to him. He had that still anger, though, on his face, anger that I helped put there. Now, I don't know what happened, but, but, but Cush somehow ended up in the back of the pack, and here I stood right in the, the, the front, and eye to eye with, with Jephthah, and as our eyes locked, Oh, a myriad of emotion and, and memories cascaded through my mind. And then Jephthah started to smile, but it was a smile that did not bring me much comfort. He walked closer to me, with his smile getting larger all along. He stood, I could smell his breath. He put his, put his sword right here. He said, good to see you, brother. Brother, do you remember the names you used to call my mother? I looked back at Kush. He was ready to faint. He said, Brother, do you remember the bet you took on how often you would have to hit me before I would bleed? Do you remember the, the get out of here, you loser? I hope you die. Oh, I remember this well. I apologized every way I could apologize. I claimed temporary insanity and depravity and every sin. And then I saw the Red Sea part when I saw his face soften and his sword come down. And I explained to him the Ammonite problem we were facing and that this was actually his land too. And that if he would come back, And if he would lead our armies, if there was victory, we would make him the prime minister, the king over the area. We would be his subjects. He took a step back, deep in thought, and he nodded ever so slowly, as if it was his destiny. We went back to our land, and we had a coronation service like you wouldn't believe. Oh, everyone was there in quite a lot of joy and excitement, exuberance. You would think it was the the first original feast of ingathering. It was incredible. And right after after that time, I became one of his aides. And over the next few months, I got to look into the, the soul of this man that we tormented as a child. I noticed a couple of things. First of all, I noticed that Jephthah was was a man of deep faith. <sighs> I don't know where he picked this up. Certainly not in Tob. Perhaps when he was at home, we did speak of Jehovah, though did not live for him. Perhaps our rejection of him is what drove him to the only one who would accept him, the only one who loved him, Jehovah. 
when we first met Jephthah and his militia, and we, we gave, I gave the proposal, Jephthah was quick to say that if we won the victory, the only reason we would win the victory is because Jehovah was with us. Now, there's a novel idea. None of my people thought that Jehovah might be part of the solution, but Jephthah, yes. Now, Jephthah, this is very interesting. Jephthah spoke much of Jehovah all the time, actually. And there are many names for, 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 for God. We would call our God El, Elohim, El Shaddai, El Rafim, many, many names. But there was one name, the special covenant name that you used if you were in close relationship with him that reminded us of his promises Jephthah used that name, Jehovah, Yahweh, more than any of the other judges who delivered our people. Whenever Jephthah Jephthah would talk about our our, our history to friends or foes alike, he always gave credit to Jehovah. Uh, Jephthah, I watched. At one point, don't want to get ahead of the story, but at one point, the Holy Spirit come down on him. Jephthah was a man of deep faith. In Jehovah. Jephthah was also a very wise leader. You don't get to be in charge of the ruffian group he was in charge of by being a schmuck. He was a very intelligent, discerning, capable man. And his way with words was as respected as his way with the sword. And so his first order of business with the Ammonite king was to unsheath his greatest weapon. His words. And he wrote the Ammonite king a letter. Oh, it was sincere. It was eloquent. I was inspired. And, and you would think that, that, that the king would respond in proper fashion. He wrote him a second letter and with, 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 with sincerity, appealing to history and tradition and, and soundness of sense. And you would think that if this king had any, any amount of, of discernment, He would recognize the truth that this land was was ours. It was given for over 300 years by by Jehovah to us. It was never Ammonite land. But superior armies often cloud the discerning capabilities of kings. He would hear not. Well, one thing that Jephthah's letters did is it gave us time to organize ourselves to do a bit of training. And so when we recognize that war was imminent... We left our homes, we said goodbye, and frankly, none of us expected to return. When we marched toward the front lines, every step brought a greater and greater anxiety. Most of us had never seen warfare of this caliber, and none of us had seen a war machine like that of the Ammonites. This would be the end. At least we would go out nobly, but this was certainly the end. That final night before we engaged the enemy, we had a a service of sorts. Fear was the realest thing around the campfire that night. It was even on the face of Jephthah. He knew he had never faced a foe like this before. And so we were pleading with Jehovah for grace when Jephthah stood up and gave his vow. And he said, oh, Lord God, if you will deliver the Ammonites into my hands then when I return in victory from the Ammonites, the first thing that comes out of the door of my house shall belong to you, and I will offer it up as a burnt sacrifice. Now, I've seen people over the years try to water down what it was that Jephthah was saying. 
They've said, oh, it was an animal sacrifice, as if Jephthah lived in a barn. Uh, Jephthah was trying to impress God. A sacrifice of Fluffy or Fida would not have been much of an impression on God. Now, you must also realize that Jephthah's home was our headquarters, and he was the prime minister. He had servants coming in and out, field servants, household servants, uh, war people in and out all the time. There was no question but that Jephthah was promising a human sacrifice. Now, if Jephthah had only known Jehovah's words, he would have known that such a thing is abhorrent to God. That in the Torah, in your books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God specifically claims not to be involved with human sacrifice. If Jephthah had only known Jehovah's words, he would have known that this was not a way to impress him. But Jephthah did not know Jehovah's words. He was from the land of Tob, where they worshipped Chemish and Moloch, where the ultimate form of worship of these demons was child sacrifice, your scripture. It is repeat with stories of Ammonite and Moabite kings sacrificing even their own children. Jephthah did not act in anger. He acted in faith. A deep faith in Jehovah, yet a misunderstanding of Jehovah's words. He acted in faith, but but based without an understanding, a knowledge of Jehovah's ways. And who could count him otherwise? He grew up in Tob, in a, a land where they did not honor Jehovah's words. In a land where the government made laws that were not of Jehovah's words. In a land where people aspired to, to power and they attained it and they were honored for it, but not according to Jehovah's ways. A land where people surrounded him, perhaps people who loved and accepted them, yet people who had no recollection or no care for Jehovah's words. Do you know of anyone who lives in such a land? You would think that someone who lived in such a land as that would realize an incredible urgency to know Jehovah's words. But alas, he did not. Well, to make a very long story short, the next day, we attacked the Ammonites. They were not expecting it. They, they must have thought that we would never attack them. Much confusion in their ranks. And, and, and they fled. We chased them. And before a few days were done, we completely disassembled the Ammonite war machine. It would be many years before they would threaten us again. You can imagine our, our exuberance. We, we were assuming this would be our end. But when the dust had settled... We won. We won. Our families were safe. Glory to Jehovah and glory to Jephthah for his faith in Jehovah. Well, we we, we went home as fast as as we could to tell the good news. As we we crested the hill where where Jephthah's home, our headquarters, was, was down below, we were singing the victory song as loud as we could. The song must have been heard in the home. Because suddenly the door flew open and Jephthah's daughter, his only daughter, came out with her tambourine. She was singing. She was dancing. Oh, she was beautiful. Almost marrying age. She was his only daughter. Well, well, Jephthah went ashen. He he started to, to stumble and trip. The rest of us weren't sure what was going on at first. But then we remembered with Jephthah his vow. Oh, Lord. 
if you deliver the Ammonites into my hands, then when I return from the Ammonites, the first thing that comes out of my house is yours, and I will offer it as a burnt sacrifice to you. When she danced up to him, she noticed the tears running down his face. She gave him a hug. He said, oh, daughter, daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched, for I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. She said, you're right, father, you cannot break this vow. Allow me to to grieve with my friends a time and then fulfill your vow to the Lord. Now, you you must know that that, uh, we were not barbarians, though much uh, culture and years and, and seas separate us. The relationship between a father and a daughter is the same. And you need to recognize something else about our our people. When it is your time to go be with Jehovah, if you have family, if you have children who are still here, in a sense, you continue to live on through them. But if you are to to, to die with no children, you come to a final end. This is the greatest shame for our people. She was able to go and grieve. She returned. And then Jephthah performed his vow unto her. If only Jephthah had known Jehovah's words, he would have known that there is a provision in our law, a provision that allows you to redeem that which you previously had vowed to sacrifice. If Jephthah had only known Jehovah's law, Jehovah's words, then he would would not have had to sacrifice his daughter for 20 pieces of silver. She could be saved. But Jephthah did not know Jehovah's law. Let me break character for a moment. What do you think about Jephthah? Better yet, what do you think God thinks about Jephthah? Uh, We don't have to look far to figure out God's understanding. In the book of Hebrews, the author in chapter 11 is, is, is looking back to the Old Testament for the greatest examples of faith that are there. People you and I are supposed to model. And so you would expect to find the people who are there, Abraham and Enoch and Moses, but there are some others there. It says, by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. There's Jephthah's name right next to King David. What do you do with that? I think from this we can draw two equations. First equation is this. Faith, saving faith, plus ignorance, biblical ignorance, equals heavenly acceptance. Faith plus ignorance equals heavenly acceptance. I I take a great comfort in this, actually, that, that my faith is not dependent on my understanding. When we get to heaven, he's not going to pass out a Bible literacy exam at the gates and say, you get 90% and you're in, man. But you get, you're not in if you get below. That's not going to happen. My, my, my faith, my, my, my salvation is not dependent on my ability to answer the questions of my agnostic relatives or my hedonistic co-workers or my atheistic professors. It's just not. 
It's not dependent on my understanding of other elements of Scripture. My faith, your faith, is dependent on our understanding of the gospel. You know, this is, this is fantastic because I spend all my time reading and studying and, and looking and thinking and meditating. And then at the end of the day, when you realize that you know so much less than you did at the beginning of the day, and, and you realize that there are many fewer things that you are sure of, and when you realize that the greatest, greatest piece of theology in all of Scripture still is, Jesus loves me, this I know. When you realize that, you take a great understand, great comfort in the fact that God is not going to judge me based on my understanding of, of Scripture. So I, I, I appreciate this personally. I also appreciate this when I look at other people. You know, sometimes it's easy, you know, there's lots of colors in Christianity, isn't there? You see some folk and you wonder, my guy's a believer and all, but where in the world did get that from? When you see people who've grown up in certain ways, maybe an environment that, that did not honor God's word, maybe an environment that, that kind of did, but they, they served it in a twisted fashion. But somewhere along the way, the person came to understand that it's only through Jesus and Jesus, as God's son, his death and resurrection, where they are saved alone, no works. They throw themselves, trust themselves completely to the propitiation, the atonement, the, the, the dissolving of the, uh, the wrath of God on their behalf. They, they hold and cling to the cross, regardless of their other understanding of Scripture. You know what? They're a believer. They are in. They're as much a child of God as anybody else. As much a child of God as one who's got the Bible memorized perfectly. So, so faith plus biblical ignorance equals heavenly acceptance. But this is no excuse for biblical ignorance, right? Another part of the equation, a second equation that we gain out of this, is that faith plus biblical ignorance equals earthly disaster. It equals earthly disaster. When I was uh, at Moody, there's, it was a girl actually a couple years after me. I'm going to call her Sarah. Um, Sarah, attractive girl, deep faith. Uh, she really had a heart for the uh, little girls, especially that were in Cabrini Green. Cabrini Green was a housing project only a couple blocks, several blocks from Moody. Uh, multiple blocks of high rises, half of them bombed out. The police wouldn't even go in there at night. If they were called in, they would meet before they went in with multiple squads and go in. It was just a, it was a, war, it was a war zone. And you, you know if you went in there to work with the kids, they went in there multiple times. You go in at daytime. You go in with the group. You leave before it gets dark. You never go into the buildings, on and on. Uh, now, Sarah uh, would basically blow off the, the warnings in the council, and she would go into to Cabrini off, and one Saturday night, you know where the story's going, one Saturday night, walking home by herself, uh, she was abducted, assaulted, and killed. I think the only... Moody student who was killed while at Moody. She had a deep faith. No one would question her faith. However, she had a faulty understanding of God's word, God's promises, who God is. Archbishop William Temple said this. He said, if your concept of God is radically false, the more devout you are, the worse it will be for you. You're opening yourself to be molded by something base. In terms of your practical life, it will be better to be an atheist. The taller the building rises, the deeper the foundation has to go, right? 
A tall building on a shallow foundation is just dangerous. The more devout you are in your faith, the more shallow your theology, the more dangerous you become. And we see this in the newspapers on a, on a, regular, on a regular basis. And C.S. Lewis was, was doing a lecture, uh, Royal Air Force Base at one point. And he says that, that halfway through his lecture, uh, a sergeant stood up and out loud said, I don't have any time for this God talk. He said, he said, now I believe in God, mind you. I experienced him out there in the desert. And once you've experienced God, you have no time for God talk. And, and Lewis sympathized with the man, empathized with him, but said, if you were to go to the Atlantic and walk along the shore of the Atlantic and listen to the waves crashing and, and feel the mist in your face, if you were to wade out into the water and hear the, the seagulls and, and then go back to your apartment and pull out a map of the Atlantic, the, the, the map would certainly look cold and, and dry. It would not have the, the excitement of the experience. He said, but let me tell you two things about the map. First of all, the map is based upon the, the, the understanding of thousands and thousands of people, not just your own experience. Thousands of people who are better qualified to analyze the experience than you are. Second thing about the map, if you want to get anywhere... You have to know the map. Likewise, in God's word, I wonder about Christianity. Sometimes you see this where folk just really like God. They like experience with him. They appreciate warm, fuzzy feelings. We all do. Um, but an understanding of the map of his word. We hope that when we become Christians, somehow the spirit will kind of zap us with all knowledge. We'll be all omniscient biblically. Uh, that's what we're hoping because sometimes it's just hard work to develop a biblical mindset. And, and, and quite often, things of the day went out. Uh, when I was at, at Columbia, I was in a Daniel Revelation class. Lots of possibility for, for, for argumentation in a Daniel Rev class. And we were arguing about some end time thing. I forget what it was. Well, well halfway through the, the arguments, Gail raised her hand and she said, you know, you know, this is why I don't like theology. Because theology always divides. Give me Jesus, don't give me theology. And she basically shut down the, the discussion at that point. And I didn't say anything to her, but I certainly wanted to say something to her. I wanted to say, well, you want Jesus? Good. Which, which Jesus do you want? Oh, you want the Jesus from the Bible. Well, that's bibliology. Oh, you want the Jesus who's the second person of the Trinity, who, who, who the Father sent to, to this world. Oh, well, now you're talking Christology. Oh, you want the Jesus who died for our sins? Now you're talking about soteriology. You want, you want the Jesus that, that saves us and, and sanctifies us from our sins. Homardiology. And the Holy Spirit he gave. That's pneumatology. And then he's going to come back one day. Well, that's eschatology. You can't have Jesus without a solid understanding of Scripture. I would ask, what Jesus are you talking about? The one that the cults have? Uh, one made of your own thinking and reasoning and understanding, that's a damning Jesus. That's not a Jesus that will take us to heaven. It is, is, is radically important that we understand God's word. Now, now here's, here's the deal. Let me ask you, those of you who live in Tob, those of you who live in a land that doesn't honor Jehovah's words, who's surrounded constantly by people who have all kinds of advice for us, but none of it reflects God's word, do you realize the urgency of knowing his word? It's not an option. It's all over scripture. Saving faith plus biblical ignorance 
and equal earthly disaster. Yes, God can save us from ourselves. Sometimes he does that on occasion. But there's also uh, all kinds of stories of those who acted in faith with biblical ignorance who, 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 who lost. So let me ask you, did you care? What, do you understand the urgency? Second thing, what is your plan? We're closing down our series, Crossroads, where the whole idea of the series was our faith needs to interact with, intersect with, with our life. The extent to which that will happen is not feelings issues, but, but, but knowledge issues when we understand God's word. Now, not just being egghead academics on God's word, but we understand it in a transforming way. When we live it out, we don't just know it in our heads. Uh, it will interact. And when we come to those situations where we're not sure how to decide, our understanding of God's word will aid us. When, when we are well grounded in, in his word and we come to those situations that we're not sure what to do. And there's not even anything directly in scripture that talks of it as we seek counsel. There will be a heart that will be much more inclined to understand and say, ah, that's, this is the way I'm supposed to go. Now, what we don't want to do this morning, we don't want to walk out of here and say, oh, Jephthah. By the way, it's Judges 11. I, I didn't. I did, wow. Hmm, interesting. OK, good. If, if we do that, we have failed. We need to walk out of here this morning saying, I have a, a responsibility. If you're not a follower of Christ, don't worry about this. But but. As a follower of Christ, I have a responsibility to know his word because faith without an understanding of his word will equal mistakes and disaster in many ways. I've got it. It's urgent. We need to have that. Second thing we need to have is we need to have a plan or at least a determination to get one. Maybe for some of y'all that that New Testament challenge, that's that's exactly what you need. It is what you need. And you've been not interested in taking it on because time and commitment, I'm not interested in committing all those things. Uh, it's for you. Perhaps for some of y'all, you know what? You, you, you need to go way beyond that. Maybe you, you've been doing the same old thing you've been doing for a quiet time stuff for the last umpteen years, and you're just in a rut. You don't think you are, but you are. And you need to take it up a level. How might you do that? My old boss used to used to preach hard on self leadership, spiritually not letting anybody spoon feed us, but but taking responsibility for my own spiritual life, saying I'm going to grow, I'm going to figure out a plan, I'm going to make it happen. I'm not going to wait for anyone else to, to serve me this one up hot. I'm going to take it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to make it work. Would you have that mindset and that heart this morning? Anything shy of that in our time remaining in this earth? We'll have we spend a lot of it coping, dealing with scars and issues and ruts that we keep falling into. 